welcome to episode 29 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about short stories, yes or no, and (laughs) (laughs) two Persephone books, which are Bricks and Water by Helen Ashton and Princes in the Land by Joanna Cannon. Uh, Before we get to any of that, Rachel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, not bad at all, except for not having any heating and having recurrence of RSI, which isn't fun. So oh, no, not sorry. really, yeah, not really using my left arm at the moment. But um, yeah. it's the worst arm, so you know it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Have you been reading anything to cheer you up? Well, um, I've, I'm what I'm reading. I'm reading, and I'm quite not quite sure why I picked this off the shelf. Um, H.G. Wells and his family. Brackets, as I have known them, close brackets, <laughs> by M. M. Mayer, who oh. uh, was governess to his children. How interesting. Yes, I realised a while ago that I sort of stocked up quite a few books about authors based on, or sorry, mem- sort of memoirs written by people who knew them in an, a unique or unusual capacity. Um, and just been accumulating these, and I really loved one I read of Ivy Comte Bennett um, by her uh, secretary. And so I thought, what will cheer me up in these cold, bleak times is reading about what H.G. Wells was like to be the governess of his children. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have this whole subcategory of your library. I know. Yeah, I was... I for a while I've been collecting books written by people who vaguely know people. <laughs> it's a, I, think, I just find it really, a really fun sort of niche way of learning about an author in, a, in perhaps quite a subjective and incomplete way, but it just doesn't have the same tone as like, an authoritative biography is much more just like, oh, I thought he was a lovely man. In this one, she sort of makes r- sl- occasional hints about the fact that H.G. Wells wasn't always the most faithful man in the world. And I think that's probably what most people think about him when they think about his personal life now is, yeah. you know, Rebecca West et al. But, um, yes, well, this was published in 1955, I think, or something like that. Um, and I'm not sure how much was known about his life then to the masses, but she's she's very decorous about it and doesn't go there. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, how about you? What are you reading? Well, I'm I'm still cracking on with Mary Barton, which is taking me a while, but I'm I'm getting there. And um, I've been reading other books in between. So I've I've read Bricks and Mortar as you did, which was mm-hmm. wonderful. And I've also read a couple of the British Library crime classics, um, which I've really enjoyed actually. Um, I can't remember the name of all <laughs> the books. Oh, um, guys, go and were, get those. They sound brilliant. <laughs> they were both by the same author. Um, actually, I can I can get up and walk over to them. Um, they are Death in the Tunnel by Miles Burton, The Secret of High Eldersham by Miles Burton, and I just finished reading yesterday The Poison Chocolates Case by Anthony Barclay, which was brilliant. I would say that's probably... The best one of the series I've read so far. Oh, really? Yeah. Because they to... can be hit and miss. Yes, there's definitely some that are better than others. I've not yeah. read anything by Anthony Barclay. And I, um, after I read Martin Edwards' book all about the golden age of detective uh, fiction, um, his name came up so often I thought, oh, I do want to try him at some point. No, well, that's a good place to start. And I do have it. Oh, well, there you are. Own. Perfect. Um, yes, I've also been dipping in and out of quite a lot of books um, and was waylaid for my book rebook. And I sort of want to vent about this because I want to know if you've read it or if anyone who's listening has read it. Um, Anthony Doerr's, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, D-O-E-R, um, All the Light We Cannot See. 
It sounds like just the sort of thing I wouldn't read. Oh, it's, oh. well, you know my fe- <laughs> you know my feelings about long books. They're yeah. well documented. This was like five hundred and ten pages, and no- oh, it's very long, particularly since nothing really happened. And oh. it's quite impressive to have nothing happening when it's set in Nazi Germany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just I just got to the end and thought, what was the point of that? And if it was it was for my book group, otherwise I wouldn't have bothered. Um, yeah. Well, that's a shame, isn't it? Is it one of those prize winner books? It won, yeah, it won the Pulitzer. Really? They'll just give a Pulitzer away nowadays, apparently. Well, I mean, they really do. It's just like the Oscars. If you tick the right boxes, then you're a shoo-in. It's like when Kate Winslet got on for, for, for doing the Nazi film. Write about uh-huh. Nazis, you'll get a Pulitzer. I'm telling you. I mean, it's actually true. <laughs> I think someone made a, a like a graph about it a few years ago, and if your film involves something to do with World War II, you're more likely to win an Oscar. Ah. Yeah. I'll bear that in mind when I'm setting up a film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I assume this will be turned into a film at some point. It had that sort of feel about it. Oh, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it was the writing was pretty good, but I just ultimately thought... We've both... I mean, we've all read so many books set in World War II, either written at the time or subsequently. I just felt this one didn't add anything to that. Yeah, shame, really. Shame. Especially once you've battled through 500 pages. I know all the other books I wanted to read at the time. I've only just finished Terms and Conditions, which is that boarding school history which I talked about last time. <laughs> I, I realised whilst writing up the... Um, <laughs> that's right. I realised whilst writing up the notes that I forgot to actually say the title of it in the last episode. So Terms and Conditions is what it's called. Isn't that a great title for a book about history of boarding schools? It is. I kind of want to read it now. You should. It's wonderful. It's published by Sally Fox. Um, and my favourite thing about it, actually is that she looks at it from 1939 to 1979, and she decides to end in 79 because she because that was apparently when the invention of the duvet was. Um, <laughs> and she thought that changed life in boarding school so drastically that she <laughs> couldn't carry on after that. That's <laughs> yeah, she's, a, she's quite an eccentric writer, but in a great way. <laughs> it's under Max Tone Graham, isn't it? I need to check this out. Sounds like just my cup of tea. Yeah, good stocking filler. Hmm. <laughs> um... Let's segue straight and very awkwardly into the first topic. Um, short stories, which was Rachel's suggestion. Thank you, Rachel. You're very welcome. Um, what are your initial thoughts? Are short stories yes or no? Well, I quite enjoy short stories in the sense that, um, you know, if you're not in the mood to read something really heavy, they're really nice to dip in and out of. And I like how they can create a real sense of place in a very short space of time. But I do think, for me, short stories work best when they're mystery or suspense, because the shortness of them lends itself to that genre. Oh, OK. Who, who have you read in that genre? Well, Simon, asking me for specific <laughs> You know, I always do. I always, always a do. problem. <laughs> um, I, like, for example, I really enjoy Sherlock, the Sherlock Holmes stories. They're really short, like 30, 40 pages. Um, really nice to get a quick story done, not too much faffing around. And it's really tense. And I love it because I know I'm not going to have to wait too long for the conclusion. Um, and I get really caught up in what happens. And I've got... Um, I've been teaching detective fiction to my kids at school and I'm trying to think what we've done. Um, and there's just loads of really good, like Edgar Allan Poe stories, lots of Victorian um, mystery and sort of those short mystery stories like um, Edith Wharton writes them. I really like Maupassant's short stories. Um, I just love that kind of 
crime or detective or mystery ghost element in a short story because I think it's quite hard to sustain the suspense of a story like that over, you know, 300 pages or whatever. That's interesting. So, yeah, I, I made some notes and I've got to say that detective ones did not come up because I think I might only have read... I suppose mystery's not the same as detective, is it? But um, I think I've only read Agatha Christie's and I always think of them as being slightly worse than her novels. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people, some people, I think, don't lend themselves to short stories. And there are some established writers who try their hand at short stories and they don't quite work because they just feel like, you know, undeveloped versions of longer, longer stories. I think people who stick to short stories tend to do, do them really well. Like people like Alice Munro is brilliant. Um, she only writes short stories. Mm. Have you ever read any of hers? Yes, I read one collection, uh, um, Too Much Happiness. Yeah. Um, which I did really enjoy. I was, and I was quite surprised actually that I did enjoy it because they were really long short stories, if you see what I mean. Yeah. They're, they're like maybe 50, 60 pages each. Um, and I, I think I've said before on the podcast actually that I do find the long short story like the most difficult genre to get on with. I, I really like a short short story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the shorter the better for me really. Um, and, I've, I've said her name on this quite a few times, I think, but Catherine Mansfield is one of my favourite writers. Oh, yes, she's um, very good. So good. And that's, and she wrote the few longer ones, didn't she? At the Bay and Prelude yeah. and things. But, and those are actually my least favourite, probably, of hers. Or yeah, no, I'd agree, actually. I don't like her longer ones. Yeah, it's things like Miss Brill or Bliss or The Garden Party, where she's just very compact and looks at... Oh, they must be, like, I don't know, ten pages, perhaps. And it's just yeah. looking at um, one significant moment or feeling or emotion or something um, and really just describing it beautifully and showing how it changes everything or maybe doesn't change everything but just like how, how it encapsulates that person's life and that's yeah. what she does really really well and that's what I'm looking for in a short story I think with with that, with the ones that I read in Too Much Happiness um, by Alice Munro I did end up really liking them and it was I think it was only because she's such a good writer <laughs> because yeah. on the surface of it they, they meander a bit they cover more than one moment they um, I'm trying to think of any specifics and I can't right now but I do remember thinking this is not at all where I thought this story would end based on where it's begun and it's gone to a few different places different people um, and it takes a really talented writer to sustain the interest for long enough that you want to get through all 50-60 pages but doesn't leave you feeling disappointed that it's ended after that time if you see what I mean yeah it's a real skill and it's such a fine art to give enough information without going into long-winded explanations in that short space of time and it is that ability to create a character in just a few words or the way that they look at people or their mm -hmm. speech um and she does that really well um and i think dorothy whipple also does that really well in her short stories don't know if you've read any of those well i have and i've written this down and i thought this might become a bit of contention because oh, <laughs> do you not like them well so i've read, I've read the close store and other stories yeah um and i liked the one short story that she wrote over and over and over again in that collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are a bit safe. <laughs> <laughs> I got to the end of thought, every single one of these is about a mother who feels inadequate. <laughs> Which, you know, is an important um, thing to write about, and we'll probably come on to that later. But, um, yes, I don't know. I, thought, I just felt they all so similar. That if I, yeah, <laughs> if I spread them out a bit, perhaps it would be better. But I think where authors who I don't like their short stories or le like them less than their novels if they've done both it's where they haven't managed to get that balance between I guess depth and breadth maybe like 
how yeah. how much time they're going to look at and how deep they're going to get into missions. I recently um, sort of gave up on Helen Oyemi's, um What Is Not Yours Is Not Yours, which um, is her latest collection, or her, I think her first collection. Um, uh, and it wasn't like a determined giving if it was just a sort of put to one side. Because each of those, I thought it was just maybe too long. It felt too much like she thought of all the characters for a novel and then decided only to write about part of the novel. Oh, yeah. See, those that feel like they're, they're, they're part of a bigger idea and the bigger idea didn't ever come off. So they just sort of wrote something that incorporated those but didn't know how to take it any further. They feel a bit truncated. Definitely. Or there's areas of the story that um, I think in some of Elizabeth Taylor's short stories, which are excellent, but there is always a character or something said that I think, oh, if only you'd written this into a book, we could have explored those elements. And it feels like I've been stopped from finding out mm, half mm. the things that I should have done, really. I think it is, um, like, I think The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield is my favourite short story that I've read. Um, and it is just, you just can't imagine it being a novel. You can't imagine it. I mean, the characters exist like fully, but you can't think, oh, this would be a scene in a novel. It could only mm. work in a short story. And I think that's, yeah, that is where they're really triumphant, I think. Yeah. Um, if someone who does, I think, write novels and short stories equally well, um, Tevi Jansen, have you read mm. any of her short stories? No, I haven't. Um, notes down for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we've talked, I've talked before, I'm sure, about her novels, but um, she also wrote various collections of short stories and those she managed to get intensity in, in one really well there's a really good one called I think The Woman Who Borrowed Memories which is the title of the collected short stories the title of the collection of um, collected short stories that New York Review of Books published which is all about a friend coming and telling oh, it was sort of a reunion between friends where one of them was telling all these stories about her life and she the other friend realises she's actually just stealing those stories from her life oh. those pronouns probably don't work out but hopefully, hopefully you know what i'm trying to say yeah um, yeah that sounds really interesting yeah, it's just a really good sort of depiction of the intensity of female friendship i guess and and how uh power can go back and forth in that yeah um yeah so she does she's someone i think um does it really on sylvia townsend warner i've only read one collection of her short stories but um again in fact really loved them and they were um they were set in this world and in this in her period, I remember when we talked about her in the episode, we compared the Lolly uh, Lolly Willis and the Love Child. We, just, we said it was a pity that she hadn't written a novel dress set in this world without the fantastic and that wasn't you know, yeah. historical or or set in another country or whatever. Um, but yeah, short stories is where she does it apparently and does it really well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think um, Richard Yates and William Maxwell are two novelists who also write fantastic short stories. Mm. Um, I wish I could just be William Maxwell because his writing <laughs> is insane on all levels. Um, and also, Trevor Capote writes excellent short stories. I love The Christmas Memory, or A Christmas Memory, okay. um, which is such a lovely story that makes me cry a little bit every time. And it's really complete. Mm-hmm. I think you'd like it if you haven't read it. I haven't. I've only read In Cold Blood, so I should... Um, yeah, no, it's, it's got nothing horrible about... Well, I mean, it's sad, but not in not a... gory. Gory <laughs> way. There's no horrific murders or anything. Um, and I'll tell you who else I really enjoy. Their short stories um, is Raul Dahl. I mm, love mm. doing them with my students because they're really short. So normally you're like five, six, seven pages. 
and they're very clever. And there's what my favourite is called the landlady. I thought that might be the one you said, yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant. I love it. Um, And I also really love Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. I did that with a class last week and their faces at the end were (laughs) priceless. Yes, yeah, read... did, that, what, did that just happen? I'm like, mm-hmm. no, we shan't spoil it in case there's anyone who's no. not read it, uh, because it's yes, much less read here than in America. So yes. um, please, that you're rectifying that in your school. <laughs> um, I just finished reading a biography of her actually by Ruth Franklin, um, that was mostly very good. No, it was very good, um, um, and looked a lot at the effect the lottery had both sort of on her family and her reputation and on people as they read it at the time. Yeah. Um, and also I discovered whilst reading that, that Shirley Jackson was a fan of Miss Hargraves. That was a fun discovery. Well, well the links never cease. Who's not a fan of it, frankly? But um, yes, I've, I've read quite a lot of Shirley Jackson's short stories. Um, possibly not all, but they, yes, they, I don't think any of them quite live up to that one. That is obviously a sort of standalone in the history yeah. of short stories, it seems. But, um, there's some very haunting and um, subtle stories in there. There's actually some really good stories about race she did as well. There's one called, I think it's After You, My Dear Alphonse or something like that, which is um, about a white boy who makes a, a African-American school friend and, and brings him home and is sort of the casual and um, unintentional racism that his mum shows to the child. It's just... Yeah. It's really, um, yeah, and uh, quite ahead of his time. It was written in the 40s or 50s, I think. So, um, challenging things that in a small town community where she lived must have been, must have set her apart a bit, yes. <laughs> oh, interesting. Are there any short story writers you think are particularly bad <laughs> to turn things to a negative side? Um, I'm trying to think if I've read awful ones. I mean, I do find it quite tricky when I read sort of the New Yorker or the London Review of Books or whatever when they have short stories in there I never seem to be able to get into them mm. I think I start reading and I just think oh I can't really be bothered I know it's not really going to go anywhere and I think I have to be going to short stories for a particular reason mm. um, and want a short story for a particular reason I don't enjoy I don't pick them up and, and read them for pleasure in that sense I'm um, just trying to think someone who I thought wasn't really good. But I've, no, I've never read short stories that publish short stories in a book by someone I know that I thought, oh, that wasn't very good. Oh, that's, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of, uh, especially people like Daphne du Maurier, her stories are fantastic. Some of them are better than others. But in terms of, you know, are they entertaining? Do I enjoy them? Yes, all the writers I like of longer books, I like their short stories too. So I've never been disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. So I think A.A. Milne wrote a couple of collections of short stories and they were towards the end of his um, writing career where in general he got worse. But um, (laughs) (laughs) those have always sort of found much more throwaway than the rest of the things he wrote. And do you think? Yeah, I I generally will read a short story collection by, by an author I really like. But I think... In general, I probably would save them till last. <laughs> um, or if I'm picking up a book by an author I don't know in a bookshop, secondhand or new or whatever, I, th- I think if it said short story collection, I'd be much more likely to put it down than to give it a go. Oh, yeah, me too, definitely. And, yeah, and I wonder why that is. Perhaps it does just require... It's weird that it requires more commitment when 
it's obviously much shorter. Or perhaps it's just you know that you'll have to remake that commitment for every story. You can't, you won't be dragged into each one. You have to, you know, 20 times in a book or whatever, start again. Yeah, and I think for me it's the fact that with short stories, you're not going to be able to read them all at once. So you don't get that sense of completing a book. You're mm. going to read one and then you'll put it down and I'll still know that I haven't really finished that volume and I'll have to go back and pick it up and do something again. And I like to read a book and know that I've read the book. I don't want to have to... You know, I've got several collections of short stories where I've read maybe two or three out of them and I've had them on my shelves for years and I've never gone back and finished them mm. because I have to be in the right mood. How many collections of short stories do you reckon you read in a year? approximately probably i'll dip in and out of about four and four or five but most of the time it's because I, i'm teaching something that requires a short story i don't often pick them up because i think oh i fancy a short story tonight yeah i think i probably only maybe read two or three collections of short stories a year compared to you know like 90 or so novels or not yeah. novels like could be non-fiction but you know full full-length prose um and I suspect probably it makes up a similar percentage of the publishing market today. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, imagine. people yeah. don't tend to like short stories to publish, do they? I know I've seen lots of the time on publisher websites saying, please, we don't accept short stories and things like that. Um, I think there's, I think there's also tends to be something a bit kind of seasonal about them. So, for example, I've noticed in the shops at the moment there's lots of Christmas short story anthologies. And there were lots of ghost story anthologies around at Halloween. And I wonder whether they've become a little bit of a gimmick rather than something that people take seriously. Yeah, maybe. I can, cause I can only think of Alice Munro and A.L. Kennedy, who are, you know, known only or chiefly for their short stories and writing today. I'm sure there's many others that people will hopefully fill us in on, but, um, mm. there's, I can certainly, yeah, I certainly can't think of many people who are known chiefly for their short stories. I sort of, I sort of see them as like when, a, a well-selling author goes to their publisher and is like, I've read some sort of stories that are like, oh, fine, we'll publish them as long as you get another <laughs> one up quickly. Yeah, they're kind of, I feel like, if you are going to write short stories, you already have to be established as a writer. Seems a bit, maybe self-indulgent in some ways, I guess. I mean, it shouldn't do, but that's maybe that's the sort of feeling I get. But I think also there's a sort of scrappiness about them and thinking, oh, well, these were the ideas that somebody had that they couldn't work up into a full novel. So they just wrote them into in a shorter in a shorter version, and I know that's not the case. In terms of these are always mm, well created mm. individual worlds, but I think that's some people's perception that they're incomplete in some way. And yeah, the worst ones are. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've read lots of short stories in magazines and newspapers that I've thought that doesn't work. Um, or you know, you what you should have done is you know that's that's part of a larger story. Um, and I think that's something perhaps amateur writers or people who, you know, haven't been published, people who are still learning their craft, they want to start out with short stories. But actually, I think people underestimate how difficult it is to get a short story right. Absolutely. I think I mean, every word matters in a short story in the way that perhaps in a novel, whilst they should, I think you probably get away with, you know, extraneous bits. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. Whereas a short story, you just need... I read an essay on short stories once as an undergraduate, which I'm sure was terrible, but it was, so I'm trying to remember the things I read at the time, the quotations. It was something like a single arc of moment or something. But basically, it has to, I feel like it has to consider, consider one thing. If yeah. you're trying to get more than one thing in, whatever that is, then it will just be too loose and fall apart. Yeah, I um, think. 
it's hard it's hard to get the balance and I mean I have read some really good ones in magazines I don't mean to say that anybody who's you know writing for magazines is writing rubbish because that's not true at all but I do tend to find that some of them in there I feel like oh that's not quite as polished as someone who's you know, an established author who I've read would have been, but then I suppose that's the case of anything. These are people trying things out, and I think it's great that they're doing that. But I'm not attracted to shorts. Like, I never read the poetry in magazines either. I just, I don't know what it is. I just prefer novels. Have you read many of the Persephone collections of short stories, like the different collections they've published rather than the anthology? No, because I can't think... I've read the Dorothy Riffle ones, but I haven't read the others because I already had Catherine Mansfield's anyway. Mm. Um, and I think they published some Catherine Mansfield short stories, did they? They did, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and like they just, yeah, they don't appeal to me in the same way. Yeah, I read the um, uh, Frances Tower. Oh, Tower I have read two with Mr. Rochester, actually, yeah. yes. I, I, we... I didn't actually think that was that great. It was one of the first Persephone's I read, actually, back in 2004 or five, and I don't remember anything about it, <laughs> so... It was the same yeah. with me. It was one of the first I read. I was That's how I found Persephone, was through that book. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. It's all coming back to me now. I was researching Mr. Rochester online, and I, I, was, I, was, I was writing an essay on Jane Eyre, actually. Oh, I so sorry. <laughs> um, I wasn't looking up pictures of Mr. Rochester, <laughs> but, you know... Um, if you happen to find some whilst you were doing it, then... Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, by the by. Um, <laughs> they had... A, I found a picture of the Penguin edition of Tea with Mr. Rochester, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I thought, oh, it might be a, a book about it. I'll look it up and see. Um, and then I realised it was this book of short stories, and then Persephone was opened up to me, and that was a, one night at university. I had a whole world oh, open to me of new books. Lovely. Oh, I know. So it must be well over a decade ago now. We're very old. We're very old. <laughs> but you know, to come along story, story short, I thought that book, I, that's actually one book of short stories I did find a bit disappointing. I can't remember exactly why, but I think I had great hopes for it and it fell short. Um, yes, yeah, so the, I do have various other Persephone short story collections. So there's Elizabeth Berridge one and a Diana Gardner one, I think, and there's probably others. Um, but yes, they don't come to the top of the pile. No. And it's a shame, really, because, you know... They are fantastic, but I think you have to be in a very particular mood for short stories. Yeah, so I, so I think in this yes or no choice, while some of my favourite writers either were primarily or only short, or short stories or, or wrote some short story collections, um, because my instincts in that sort of hypothetical situation of picking up a book and seeing its short stories as putting it back on the shelf... I'm going to have to say my answer is probably no um, for yes or no to short stories um, with the willingness to change in future. That's very that's very gracious of you, Sam. <laughs> um, I would have to say I'm probably a no as well. Not that I don't enjoy reading them, but they're not stories, they're not things I would go to instinctively. So, yeah, I suppose not. And I, but again, I'm willing to be changed, and I'd love to hear about more really good short story writers that I haven't come across. Yes, please. Please don't think of Stella Steins. We, uh, we definitely look out for them, <laughs> looking on the lookout for more. And I think it's probably quite a rare reader who would pick short story collections over novels more often yeah. than not. But things we do instinctively go towards are Persephone books. Yes. Oh, <laughs> lovely, Simon. Thank nice you so much. Well. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, and... I think this was your, were these your suggestions as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm on sure. fire at the moment. You really are. 
Um, talk us through why. Not, uh, not why you're on fire, why you chase these bugs. Well, it's because I... Well, these are two of the books I've, I've had for my gift subscription that I got for mm. a lovely present from some parents uh, in the summer. Uh, at your school, I assume, rather than yes. you know, your curious way of referring to your mum and dad. <laughs> Some parents that I know, uh, no, from school parents, which was a very nice gift, especially as they had no idea that I liked Persephone books. So, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, we do work around the corner from them. But... So, two of the books I have read recently from my gift subscription are Princes in the Land and Bricks and Mortar, and I was quite struck by how similar they were in their depiction of parenthood. And the disappointments, along mm. with the joys. And I liked how refreshingly honest they were. Because I think a lot of books, certainly some Persephone books in particular, can be quite um, idealistic, perhaps, about motherhood. And these, uh, or parenthood in general, because actually Bricks and Mortar is, is about a father, which is quite mm. nice. Mm. Um, and these ones sort of expose the fact that you can have doubts and things can go wrong and sometimes you don't feel as much as you think that you would for your children and I think that's really interesting especially if somebody's not a parent yes indeed um we both come to it with that <laughs> ignorant <laughs> perspective but uh, um should we give a brief intro to them I'm gonna if I may bag tea bricks and mortar because I don't remember yes. very much about <laughs> Princess and the Land as, as will become clear um <laughs> So I just read Bricks and Mortar um, after Rachel suggested it, and it's been on my shelf actually since um, I think 2005. So it was it was nice to have the motivation to read it. Um, and it's yeah, it's quite a simple, straightforward uh, story of Martin, who was an um, an architect, um, becomes an architect shortly after the story starts, um, and his wife Letty. He meets her in Rome. His, her her mum is very um, sort of well-meaningly manipulative, manages to get them to. Managed to get them to um to marry <laughs> quite quickly. Yeah. Um. They have a couple of children, and I don't want to give too many spoilers about the book, but it's sort of a fairly linear, fairly evenly paced look at his entire life from the point of meeting his wife to the end of his life, I guess. Um. So yeah, it, it's quite hard to describe the plot because it is just one person's life de- dealing with his. Yeah, what he thinks of his children, how his career goes, how he deals with his wife, how he deals with his mother-in-law. Um, basically, that sort of very 1930s family saga-esque thing. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that'll do for now. Um, take it away with Prince in the Land, please. Yeah, so Prince in the Land is, is sort of similar, really, apart from it's about a woman uh, called Patricia, who is actually, she starts off the novel as a child, and she... Her father dies and she goes to live with her very wealthy grandfather who lives in a stately home in the countryside and they have this lovely childhood. And then she meets and falls in love with somebody who is a lecturer, so he's of a lower social status, so her mother is not best pleased. But she thinks that she can make a really good go of it anyway. She thinks love will be enough. And then over time, the marriage starts to fall apart a little bit. Well, not fully, but they don't really understand each other. And she has three children and she pours everything into them because she doesn't work and you know she has to sacrifice where she would like to live and things for moving around for her husband's work and it's just a slow gra- gradual realization as the children grow up and and make their own decisions that actually a lot of the stuff that she's been working towards in life lots of the things she's put her, her hopes in for her children her children have rejected and moved away from and 
and she starts to wonder, you know, what was the point? What am I left with? What was the, you know, what was the point in my life if if I gave everything for my children who don't care for me or what I want in the same way as I do? And I just found that really interesting, and it was kind of, but I didn't find it sad. There were moments when I found it sad, but ultimately, it, it's not a sad book, which I thought was quite ingenious, really, when you consider the, the subject matter. They, I mean, I suppose other people might have found it sad, but I didn't. Well, I will put my cards on the table with Princess in the Land and say that I had quite a negative reaction to it. Right. Um, so I read it back in 2009. Um, I've just been rereading my review today and remembering why I disliked it. Um, so I thought the writing was good. I thought it was very witty at times. There's one bit I loved about um, describing her, I think it's her brother-in-law maybe, he says that his reactions to everything in life was two simple sentences, hellish A, and yeah. ripping what, <laughs> which was great. So that bit, yeah. And I, and I do, I love books about, um, you know, fairly ordinary people in this. This is another 1930s book, isn't it? But, yeah. um, so I, I think, I think, um, Joanna Cannon wanted us to sympathize with, with Patricia. And I just found her so selfish and, and, and just nasty. And like the, the reason that her, children have all disappointed her is because they say pardon instead of what and like don't love riding horses i think at one point she says goodness knows i'm not a snob and she and and apparently it's written without irony like this is the <laughs> most snobbish character i've come across since you know nancy mitford and it's just oh no, she it's is a frustrated snob. me so much yeah she is a snob um <laughs> i think like her children shouldn't be a disappointment to her they're just not her no anything that yeah <laughs> but I read it as she sort of felt that they'd rejected the values that she tried to instill in them and the things that she had shared with them. So, for example, she's devastated when she realizes her daughter doesn't love horse riding because horse riding is what means the most to her. And because she thought that her daughter loved it, it was a connection that they had. And when her daughter says, actually, do you know what? I don't like riding horses, Mum. I want to do mechanic stuff instead. You know, obviously, while it's a metaphor for tradition and modernity, you've also got the idea of her, her daughter rejecting her mother through rejecting what means the most to her mother, if that makes sense. It does make sense, I guess. But I just, I mean, again, I'm not a parent, um, so I don't know um, if I'm being just here, but I would hope that any parent would get over that quite quickly and just be like, oh, I want you to be happy and do what you like, not just mourn about it forever. <laughs> Well, no, but I think, you know, when you're, you haven't had anything else in your life. That's, yeah, that's a good point. I think that's what she struggles with because she starts thinking, well, hang on a minute, I've, I've sacrificed everything for the, for my children. And actually, what have I got back from it? And I should point out that I don't need, um, to empathize or, or particularly like characters in order to like a book. I think it's, in this case, it's just because, in fact, in both cases, I think, so much is built of the main character's personality and their thoughts and their hopes that if you if you don't find them sympathetic, it does matter more in these books perhaps than it would in others. Would you agree? No, I agree absolutely. And I think if 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 you your moral values don't align with with the character, but you're supposed to morally align with the character, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to get past that. Um, but you know, I found her quite sympathetic, really, um, and. I kind of, I suppose, empathised with the fact that she she felt that she'd 
lived a, um, an empty life because when it comes down to it, all of her children have, have walked away from what she was trying to provide for them. And the sadness is that she didn't ever realise that her children wanted different things as they were growing up. And I think it's that sadness that she realises that at the end. She realises that she never really knew them and that and they don't know her. And I wonder whether that's a generational thing as well. You know, she was never really taught how to be a mother because she never had one. I mean, she did have a mother, but she wasn't really brought up by her. It was a time of great change, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that's really interesting perspective as well to think about. You have this generation of women who are brought up in the nursery by governesses and nannies and then they're suddenly expected in the 30s in an age with no servants and what have you to bring up their own children but they've not no model of that so how do they do it one book it kept reminding me of when i was reading it and in fact i think it's a great um book to make a little trio with both of these is hostages to fortune by elizabeth cambridge oh yes very much so yeah um i think maybe that's also one of the reasons that i took against it when i was reading it um, Hostage of Fortune is one of my favourite Persephone's all, all about a doctor's wife um, in the Oxfordshire countryside um, and she similarly discovers that her children aren't quite as she thought they were and don't want the thing, same things she wants and has an unsatisfactory marriage to some extent at least I think she does deals with it all much better <laughs> or much more um, I, yes. yeah, if I had to pick one character to, to empathise with certainly to sympathise with it, yeah, it would be Whatever her name is, I can't remember. <laughs> no. But then she has a happier marriage. It is happier, yeah. And I wonder whether that has an impact on it. Speaking of the happiness or otherwise of marriages, mm. that was something in Bricks and Mortar um, that I found perhaps slightly confusing. Because Yes. Yes, it's set up as this slightly awkward engagement between two young people who, you know, are both willing to, you know, they're not forced into marriage, but it is... Um, they're both a bit sort of bewildered and manipulated by this, um, by her mother, Letty's mother. Yes. And then it feels that sometimes like the marriage is really unhappy and they just don't have anything in common. And then occasionally, um, Helen Ashton would just write something about how happy they were or how much they loved each other. Um, which always threw me a bit, thinking, do they? Are they? Am I, am I missing that? <laughs> what did you yeah, think? Yeah, I found that a bit confusing as well. But I think what she was trying to get across was that they were so comfortable in each other's company that they didn't need to have much in common. And I think even though Martin was frustrated with her quite a lot for not sharing in in his interests, she sort of let him have his interests and let him go off and do things. And what they shared was the children and their life together, like their home and all the rest of it. And I think that was enough for them. Because yeah. she is ev- everything to him. It was always his work, his architecture. That's why it's called Bricks and Mortar. He's an mm-hmm. architect. Um, and he, I think all of the things that perhaps he'd hoped to put into his marriage, he put into that instead. And so he accepted her for who she was. She accepted him for who they were. And there was a sort of mutual affection, I suppose. They grounded yeah, yeah. each other. And I think that's probably the impression that you're supposed to get to the end. I think maybe my... My only issue with that is the number of times we see them, like him taking, instead of two children, um, Aubrey and Stacey, um, Letty very much t- is, has Aubrey as her favourite, um, and Martin has Stacey as his favourite. And I, there's so many scenes where they fall out of the children or fall out of the priorities or, or where they're going to live or whatever. That, um, yeah, I thought it was yeah. a bit clumsily depicted because, like you say, there's, you see so much unpleasantness about Letty, but then we're frequently told that she's really nice. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, but you haven't really shown that, so I don't really know where we're supposed to get that from. Because I got the, I got the impression, for for me, I read her as being very annoying. Yes, um, and I should say, still really loved this book. Um, it was, yes. it's, just, I think it's just so impressive to tell her story where you start at one point and. And it is very evenly paced. There's no real like skipping of years or rushing of anything. Just like yeah. to go through his life to the end and think. With the red find a novel nowadays that doesn't have like a gimmick about moving around in times or perspectives, or whatever. Just to start from the beginning and go to the end in the way that she does. Yeah, it's just it takes a really yeah exceptional writerly talent, I guess, to sustain interests throughout by just doing that. And it feels very very 1930s in that way. It's, it was a lot of that sort of thing about I guess yeah I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the setting I loved London I loved the description of the houses and the building of houses and and the idea of someone being so passionate about their work and I love that you know his daughter is the one he's interested in his work mm, and mm. his daughter is the one he gravitates to and sees promising rather than his son and that's real symbol of modernity there as well where you see that you know obviously Stacy is going to be the one to carry on her father's interests rather than than his son though obviously I won't say why his son doesn't but um mm-hmm. and and his sort of concern and that jealousy of of her wanting you know when she starts to reminds me of my my dad when I started sort of going out with boys and things that idea of hating the thought of letting your daughter go but knowing at the same time that you're going to have to um, and his wrestling for that was really, really touching. Yeah, I I did really love that she'd made the the daughter the eventually professional architect. It seems really ahead of its time because by the time so the novel was published in thirty two was it something like that and um, she becomes the architect in the late twenties I guess in in the story. Yeah, which is very forward, so yeah. so forward thinking, um, and it's never even. Like it's never even shown as this big controversial thing. Like there's a there's a couple of characters who think oh women won't be any good at that or whatever, but they're pretty quickly just ignored. <laughs> and, yeah. And and her mum's not that happy, but it's not really because she's got a job. It's more because it's not a ladylike job in her eyes or whatever. Yeah. And she's not it's, at home to look after her. Yeah. There's there's none of the sort of women can't possibly earn money, um, shtick. <laughs> even yeah. though you know Letty had no intention of doing that herself. Um, yeah, and I, like you, I really enjoyed all the stuff about architecture in it, and I know relatively little about architecture, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it never felt like she just shoved her research in or was trying to blind you with, um, technical terminology or something. It just, all very natural. It's because it was his enthusiasm and the things he saw as he looked at buildings or looked at his work. She just yeah. communicated that and it worked really well. And it was a really lovely depiction of, London at the time and I loved it because it's all set around where I work so I was just like oh I know where that is and I know where that is and yeah. that I did enjoy it. characters having to like slum it in, in Bloomsbury like, yeah, well, I guess we'll just have to live here for a bit <laughs> oh you're just crammed in the top floor of Bedford Square it's like yeah it's nice actually but then... <laughs> so it was no it was a real timepiece and I think both of the books are really sensitive in their portrayal of of parenthood and how you can pin hopes on children whether you mean to or not and I think they're both sort of saying you have to let children be their own person but that can actually be really difficult to do because obviously you do have children with the hope that they're going to be like you in some way and how do you handle it when they're not yeah that's true um makes me rather scared of the whole idea really (laughs) 
Um, and I think that it probably is more of the crux of Princess and the Man than it is Bricks and Mortar. Yeah. I, I felt like Bricks and Mortar had maybe less of a message to give. It was more just like, these are real people, this is what happened yeah. to them. Yeah, this is life. And they're not real people, but you know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is just meticulously planned and beautifully detailed, and but never like overly introspective or... Um, we're not really told too much about like the depth of what people are feeling. It's more just sort of what happens and surface level reactions to it, I guess. Which it's not a shallow book by any means, but it's not like he doesn't spend pages staring in at the wall, wondering where his life's going or something. It's just it just keeps going. No, it's you know it's just lovely. Yeah. Have you read anything else by these people? I haven't. No, I feel I've. I know Helen Ashton wrote quite a lot of books to do with doctors and things like that. Um, and Joanna Cannon, all of her other books seem to be a bit impossible to get hold of. I'm sure you've got them all, though. Well, I've got a few, not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> which I bought before I read Prince of the Land and then felt slightly reluctant. <laughs> Have I got a few? I've got, maybe it's only one, actually. I think High Table I've got by her. Didn't you find that for 10p somewhere? So you didn't... Yeah, I might have done. Do I need to bring it, do I need to pop it in the post for yeah. you, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where it is, to be honest. I assume it's in Somerset. Um, maybe it'll wind up in your bookcase one day. I feel less less protective about that than about some of the books. <laughs> um, I do have a book, another book by Hannah that I think my friend Diana gave me, um, called pa- Is it Parson Austen's Daughter? I think it's a novelisation of Jane Austen's life. Oh uh, yes. Which I um, yeah I haven't read, but would be now much. I mean, I already thought it'd be good, but now having really enjoyed this one, I thought oh, yes, I'll give that a go. Hmm. I used to have that, but I don't anymore. I think my copy was so badly damaged that I got rid of it. Did you? You didn't read it? No. Yeah. I haven't got around to it. Um, and I think I've got another host called Return to Cheltenham. Ah. I can't remember if I, I bought it or just saw it. <laughs> um, but yes, she seems quite prolific. Yes. Um, I can see why Persephone chose this one, because Nicola Bowman does love books about women finding jobs. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think they're both superb choices, and I was really pleased to read them. They've been on my list for a while, so I was really glad to to get through them. And I've got another one on my pile that's about houses as well, Green Bank, not Green Banks, um, so the latest one, R.C. Sheriff, I think. Is it Green Mansion? Green something. Green Gates? <laughs> I don't know. Something oh, green. green. Gages? Green. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember the note they put in the, I can't remember, Persephone... Um, biennially or the letter or something saying yes its title is incredibly close <laughs> to <Green Bank's laughs> film, but we can't help that <laughs> no you're right um i've still not read any rc sheriff actually and people really rave about his books so i um oh the fortnight in yeah. september is lovely you should read it yeah i mean unsurprisingly i do own it <laughs> <laughs> um one day one day um, well, uh, I'm finding our Stephanie choices for the podcast quite productive maybe i'll work my way through all the ones i've not read by doing that well, it's, it's good. It's good for us to get these these unread books off our shelves, isn't it? Absolutely. So yes, please, um, anyone who has favourite Persephone's that we've been yet to mention, um, yes, please do tell yeah, us, yeah, and we will get around to them. We've probably got them on our shelves. Seems more than likely. Yes. <laughs> Even the collection of short stories. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it will be no surprise which one of these two I will pick. It is hands down bricks and mortar. But I'm interested to know which one you would choose. I think I would go for Bricks and Mortar as well, actually. I did really enjoy Princess in the Land, but in terms of general positivity throughout the experience, I would go for Bricks and Mortar. We are in complete agreement today, Rachel. Oh, look at us. 
Um, great. So for the next episode, we will be doing a couple books by Muriel Spark. We yes, are doing, we are. Yes. Um, and I think I'm right in saying we've both read one of them so far. So we've yes. both read uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. You can't really do Muriel Spark without doing that one. Um, and we'll be comparing it um, to A Far Cry from Kensington, which neither of us have yet read. No, so I need to get on to finding that. Um, I, I, the only reason I, I so this is this is my request. The only reason I chose that one was because back in two thousand and ten or eleven or whenever it was that Harriet Devine and I ran um, Mural Spark Reading Week. That was the one that lots of people said was brilliant, and I've been meaning to read it ever since. So I'm using the podcast as a way of making sure I do. <laughs> yeah. But I pre warn you, Rachel, and everyone listening, that I will. Talk a lot about a lot of different Euro Spark novels. <laughs> 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 so get ready to fast forward in advance, everyone. <laughs> Great. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll speak to you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.